You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. mic off did they can you hear me now no there's it back on sorry I thought I, I caught my voice when I was singing I'm like I'm shutting that off uh, the grass withers the flower fades the word of our God stands forever that little commentary was not the word of God but what we read was uh, Colossians chapter 1 so I want to draw our attention this morning to the end of verse 16 um, we're going to take some time this passage is uh, as, as an astonishing passage I mean you can't I don't, we'll never be able to fully exhaust the, the, po- the poetry here that Paul is using, the depth of theology that he's describing. This is, this is so grand and so beautiful. But I just want to take a slow down a little bit, even though we've been going fairly slow through this, but to just focus in on a few things. And just this morning, I want to look at just the end of, of verse 16. Last week, we emphasized the, real, the, the big picture idea that comes from this passage, which is that Christ is the creator of all things. I mean, all things, all things are made through him. And you can look at and highlight how many times all things is written there in your text. Paul is clearly trying to make the point, Christ is the one through whom all things were made. And the word all things is a very uh, inclusive word. It means There was nothing that wasn't made by him. You could go to John chapter 1 where John speaks of this same way. All things came through him and and without him was not anything made that was made. So that's the big idea that Paul is getting at here. But at the end of verse 16 it says all things were made through him and for him. All things were made through him and for him. 
Christ is the creator. He is supreme over all creation because he was there for all of creation. He's the Lord and sovereign of it all because he made it all. But there does come a question to us when we start, that comes up over and over again. Um, it's the question last week, my little girl Jana asked me when we got home and you know, communion has changed a little bit. We got everyone's got their little cup of juice and wafer, and so uh, and and lots of people are several. I heard spilled, and mom was one of them that you know spilled a little juice trying to get it out. And so she was asking me questions about communion. One of the usually I it's a great way to get into some conversation with your kids. Why do we take communion? Why can't I take communion? What's that about? So we went to a nice conversation. I love rabbit trails. Um, getting a conversation with me, I have no problem going off in left field into what. Whatever. So I like kid conversations because you never know where they're going to take you. And so she was asking me, you know, um, you know, what's communion about? The expo, you know, we were talking about the cross, Jesus dying for our sins. Why do we sin? You know, Adam and Eve were born in sin. On and on and on. And finally, she gets to this, the, the, this pinnacle of philosophical questions that everyone wrestles with. My my four year old girl gets to this question: Why did God make us? Why? I mean, and, and, I, and it's like, that's, that's, she's talking, that's philosophy. That's, 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 that's like next level stuff of really trying to contemplate, okay, but then why? Why did God make us? And how do you answer that? And when someone comes to you and say, well, why, why did God make us? Now, it was, and I can't, I can't trace the actual like, I tried to remember the conversation, and typical of rabbit trails, I have no idea how we got all the way there, but we did. But um, how do you, I couldn't avoid the question and just kind of pat her on the head and, and give some pat answer. I wanted to give a real good answer. Well, what do you say? Why did God make us? Well, thankfully, um, I, I show up at CYF, our kids club, and we go through a catechism. Some of you have been for choir. You probably have heard us at the end of our group time. We go through a catechism. And one of the questions we ask is, why did God make you and all things? The first question in the catechism is, who made you? And the answer to that is, God made me. Then the question, next question is, what, uh, what else did God make, right? God made God made all things. I'm forgetting. It's been so long since we've done it. I'm embarrassed. Uh, who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why? Third question. Why did God make you and all things? Answer. For his Friedrich's got it. For his own glory. Why did God make you and all things? For his glory own glory. This is why God has made us. Now, that's the right answer. Why did God make us? For his own glory, that he would be glorified. And we could go through many Old Testament texts, but that's exactly what we see here in this text this morning. All things, the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Not only did he make all things, but the point of making all of these things was for himself. He has made all things for himself. Not only were all things made through Christ, all things were made for Christ. Now, lest you think I'm just unfairly highlighting that little word for, all things were made for Christ, unless you think I'm unfairly 
highlighting just that few words, that's a familiar refrain throughout the New Testament. You can look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. I think I've got a screen so you can look at it there. But Romans eleven thirty-six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. What's the point of all things? All things are going back to him. For from him we get all things. Through him all things hold together. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Why has God made us? For his own glory, for himself. Why are you here? You are here for him. All things, why were you made? Who made you? God made you. Why? For himself. God made all things from him, through him, and to him are all things. You go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Great long section there at the beginning of Ephesians, but jumping in at verse 9, it says that making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness or the completion of time to unite all things in him. All things made to be united in Christ, in him, things in heaven and on earth. Not only is he the creator of all things, he is the one for whom all things were made. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. It says that yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see the same language there being used of God the Father and of Jesus. Made from, through all things, made through him and yet all things also being made for him. Big idea you are not your own. You are not your own. Your life does not belong to you. Christ as the creator has lordship, has authority, sovereignty over his creation. Christ is not only the one who begins it all, he is the one for whom all things are heading. So if he began it all, and all things are going to be wrapped up in him. What happens in the middle? It doesn't all just go back to the individual. If, if all things are made by him, all things are going to be wrapped up by him. All things in the middle are for him as well. That's us. We're here in the middle. We weren't at the beginning. We're not at the end yet. And in, the, in between those two times, all those things, those are his too. And the reasons why I wanted to stop on this point today is for just a very simple reason. We have imbibed, we have drank the tonic of this day, which says, I am my own, I do as I please. And the, the, the tonic, the drink, the, the, that we just uh, absolutely drown ourselves in our culture today is what matters most is me, is my opinion, my feeling, my desire, my wants, my wishes. And today, that what we want, what we the individual want, becomes supreme in our lives. All things are made by Christ, great, and they're all made for me. That's what we want the text to say. Because of sin, in curvatus in se, sin has bent us in upon ourselves, the Latin phrase, in curvatus in se. And so we think all things are made by God. We're okay with that. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. And they're made for me. But the way the Bible talks about it is quite different. 
They're made by him and they're made for him. Your life is not yours. You belong, you are ruled by the creator. There, are no, there is no higher good in our minds today than our own personal happiness and achieving it through whatever means we think we should be able to achieve it. My happiness becomes the pinnacle good and whatever means I have to employ to get it, then I should be allowed to get it because this world, the, the, the mindset of our age and probably of all sinful humanity is that I am supreme. But the reality is that the world is headed to a final glorification of Jesus Christ. There's a very real sense that the whole Bible could be read eschatologically. The whole Bible could be read as going towards this one great end. And I don't mean that as in, in the sort of left behind, you know, speculative end times, you know, uh, adventure stuff. But the, the, the end time, everything is going towards one great culmination, the great consummation. When Christ is going to return, like Philippians chapter 2, the great, another great hymn of Christ that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning all, every place that there is, one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the great end that we are all headed towards. We are not our own. There is no one because he is the sovereign creator that belongs to themselves. There is nothing on this universe that anyone can properly say is mine. You, like Job says, naked I come into this world, naked I shall depart. You own nothing because you are not the sovereign creator of the universe. It is all his. But the Christian especially is doubly not their own. Not only are you not your own because you've been created by Christ and therefore owe to him your entire existence, but as a Christian, you have further been redeemed by his own blood. Not only as he created you, but as you were plunged into sinfulness, Christ came and redeemed you with his own life and death. That's the point of verses 19 and 20 in Colossians, right? In him, the fullness of God was pleased to, to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you are a Christian this morning, you are God's creation by just existence and you are God's new creation in Christ Jesus. You doubly belong to God. Your life is not your own in an even higher sense than all the rest of creation. Because not only did God create you, but by bringing you to faith in Christ, he has recreated you, made you a new man in, the, in, in, in union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And it's talking specifically there about Sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the, is the, is the actual uh, direct application there, but it's a principle that's true throughout Scripture. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What this means, you are made by Him, made for Him, you are not your own, this means that everything that you think is yours is, is not yours. Your marriage ultimately is not your marriage. 
It is not for you. It is not for your personal pleasure. It is not for your personal advancement. God certainly blesses many things in this world so that you do get personal pleasure, personal security, enjoyment out of those things. But ultimately, it is not yours. Your job is not, first and foremost, yours. It is, you are in that job because God has put you there. Your job is not yours. Your interpersonal relationships, they are not yours. Your finances, they're not yours. Your retirement is not yours. It's not this thing that you get and now I get to say, I have created this thing for myself, therefore now I do what I want to with what I have created for myself. You don't, in your job, you don't earn this wage and say, this is what I have done for myself, and because I belong to myself, I now do what I want to do with the things that are mine. As the Christian, you are doubly not yours, you are doubly his. You are his. The questions that we now ask sound like this. What does God want in this situation? What does God want in this marriage? So the way this would, would work out in that sort of interpersonal relationship, when friction comes in the marriage, and I know most of you probably don't have any friction in your relationships, but I've heard tell of things happening, of, of disagreements in marriages. And when that happens, often when we live with ourselves as our lives are our own and our marriages are ours, the first question we ask is, is how can I get this to work best for me? How can I get them to see my point? Or, or just let's, if the marriage gets to such a place where it's going so bad for so long, the, the real hope is just let's just put the grenade on this and blow this up and, and find something that's more personally fulfilling for me. Because really this marriage is mine and I can have it or not have it up to my own whims and desires and what I think is best. But when you're in that marriage and you realize it's not yours, the question you ask is not how can I get my way here but how can God be glorified here? So when there is this friction, the question you're asking is not, how can I get them to see my point? But maybe, how can the gospel make a difference here? How can I operate in forgiveness? How can I operate in graciousness? How can God be honored in this marriage? Because ultimately, this marriage isn't mine. It's his. When it comes to finances, the same questions could be asked. When it comes to all sorts of interpersonal relationships, your retirement, uh, your, your free time, all of these things, asking, not living like, hey, this is mine, I get to do what I want with it, but what does God want? So what would most glorify, we could ask, what does God want to have done here? What does God want here? How, what would most glorify and honor God in this decision? Do we ever stop and ask those kind of questions. Because if you don't, then you, you need to start realizing, maybe admitting, I don't live with God as the sovereign Lord of my life, but maybe I live way more with myself as my life is mine and not God's. If those questions never cross your mind, never, never come to the forefront of your reality, what does God want here? Not just what I want at every turn, what does God want? Then maybe we are living with our life as though it is ours as opposed to being God's. What difference does this make? So is this, is this just putting out um, more hard law? What, what difference does this make? This, it's a huge question to ask because it means that if, if Christ is overall, if he's before all things, 
If, if all things hold together in him, which is what the passage also talks about, all things are going towards him. So therefore, all that is in the middle is, is no longer their own, but belong to him. It means that everything in between, it matters. It means everything is now filled with value and meaning. If your life is just yours, that is too small to carry the weight of meaning. You are, a, 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 you are the grass withering and fading. You are a flower that springs up and is beautiful for a moment, and then it dies off and it's gone. I mean, how many spring flowers are still going? My daylilies are finally coming out, but all, the, all those beautiful spring flowers, they grow up and they're beautiful. And now they're, they just, you pull the heads off and they're just kind of ugly green weed out in your flower garden. Well, sorry, but that's, that's the reality of the, of the human life. It springs up, it's beautiful for a while, and then we're gone. If life is just yours, that's too small to ever give life any real meaning commentator that I was reading says this about, about that idea. He says that if creation has been created by Christ and exists for Christ, then it is never meaningless. If we belong to Christ, then it means that we too have a place in the cosmic story. History is not just one thing after another. It has a purpose and it is moving somewhere. Proof of this will never show up in a laboratory experiment, in pictures from the space telescopes, or in atomic microscopes. We see through a glass darkly. But science is an even darker glass for finding the meaning to life. Science has unlocked many mysteries of life, but it can never unlock the mystery of life. Science can observe, describe, and analyze what is already there, but it cannot give answers to the question, why? C.S. Lewis wrote, In the whole history of the universe, the laws of nature have never produced a single event. They are the pattern to which every event must conform, provided only that it can be induced to happen. Here's the illustration. A billiard ball hitting another billiard ball follows the laws of physics, but those laws, why they bounce the way they do, those laws did not set the ball in motion. Someone with a cue did. The laws are the patterns to which events conform. The source of the events must be sought elsewhere. In other words, the meaning of the universe can only be found outside of creations. creation. Christians have some understanding of its purposes only because of their knowledge in Christ, who is beyond creation yet within it. Because God is over it all, in it all, and all of it is for him, all of it has purpose and meaning. If we can't get over the hurdle that our lives are not our own, we've been created by God. If we can't get over the hurdle that my life is not my own because I've been bought with Christ and therefore I should glorify God with, with all that I have. If we can't get over that hurdle, we're left with, with a real Ecclesiastes meaninglessness. We've, we've come from nowhere, we're going nowhere, and if you've come from nowhere and you're going nowhere, then all that's left in the middle is nothing and no meaning and, and nowhere. But if we have come from God and we are going to God, we are made for him all along the way, then everything is filled with meaning. 
Your marriage now is filled with immense meaning because it is a marriage that is meant to glorify God. Your job is filled with immense meaning because you work not for yourself but for the Lord. Your finances now have incredible meaning, not because they secure for you the things that you want, but they are serving an eternal mission. Your interpersonal relationships now are not just there for your own personal whims and enjoyments, but they have eternal significance and value and meaning. If God, because he is over it all, in it all, and all of it's for him, all of life has meaning and purpose. And even your suffering has meaning. This, is, this becomes really important in the case of suffering because we all endure really hard things in life. Some more than others, some valleys deeper than others, but difficulties come our way. But even your suffering has meaning. Your loss, because you are from God, for God, going to God, your loss, it matters. Your suffering, it matters. Your pain, it matters. Your difficulty, it matters. Your upset, it matters. You are not your own. You are His. And this is incredible good news. You are not big enough to give your life meaning. I jumped the gun on that. But Francis Schaeffer, uh, he would say that we are not a large enough integration point to hold all of the meaning that we know in life. We're too small. If life is about me, then life is impossibly pointless. <laughs> we are far too small to hold all the meaning that there is in the universe. There is something better yet. There is someone big enough to hold it all together that it is all for. And so all of us who are in his narrative, his world, all of us who are living, who are for him, we can rest and know that nothing is without meaning and purpose. And all will go towards his glory on that great and final day. Our last objection might be this. Well, what's in this for me, though? I mean, okay, so if he made it all and holds it all together and everything's going back towards him, therefore my life has meaning, but gosh, is that really any way to live? You've given me meaning, but I don't ever get to enjoy anything. It's not about me. Well, I think that's a fine objection, but... First off, my answer to that would be God has wired the world with such a myriad of enjoyment, such a, a just a plethora of enjoyments, of beauty, of, of, of just laughter, of love, of so many beautiful things. And I think it's evident that God desires our joy in the midst of this world that is going for him. It's fairly evident God has wired the world um, with pleasures in his creation for us to enjoy. Enjoying them properly with gratitude toward him for them is part of the meaning he's wired in the world. But let me give you just a silly illustration. I've used this before years ago. It's so dumb, but it just sticks in my head. It's goofy. But uh, imagine a hammer and a dish rag. And you both very much have clear jobs, right? Uh, they, you know, they have the saying that if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? Because that's just what you do is you just, hit, you just hit nails. So, but could you imagine taking a hammer into the kitchen sink to wash dishes? If you were to personify the hammer, isn't the hammer really frustrated at its life? <laughs> because it just feels like this is not what I was made for. Nothing gets clean. I keep breaking stuff. Uh, this is point. This is just, I, I'm very unfulfilled because the very thing I was made for I'm not being used for. 
And the dish rag, you take it out and you're trying to build something and you're, you've got it balled up in your hand. You're trying to beat nails in with a dish rag or you're trying to pull nails out. You wrap it around the nail and you try to, and you just tear the dish rag to pieces. If you could personify the dish rag, isn't the dish rag very unsatisfied with its life? Because the very thing it was made for, it's not being used for. But when the dish rag goes where it's supposed to go, when the hammer goes to the job that it's supposed to go, the dish rag cleans when it, when it does what it was made to do. Doesn't it feel right at home? Isn't that the best place for it to be? When the hammer goes to the job that it's supposed to do, isn't it right at home where it was supposed to be? As his creatures, made by him, held together by him, made for him, wouldn't it make sense that where we are most fulfilled is right where we were created to be. Not living for ourselves, but living for what we were made to be, to do. Living for Him. It absolutely is the reality that is put forward in Scripture. God has just, does all things, we pray it a lot around here, for His own glory and also for our good. Because when you do what you were made to do, that is where you will be most satisfied, most fulfilled in living for him, because he has made it all, holds it all together, all things are headed towards him. Your greatest joy is found by joining him in all that he has purposed. Let's pray. Father, help us. I pray for any, myself included, God, that feels conviction this morning over areas of my life, maybe the whole of my life, way more larger percentage than I want there to be, that I'm consumed, that is consumed with living for my desires and, and not yours, getting frustrated and upset and let down at where life takes us, but all the while not realizing that there's nowhere that life lived for itself can lead to accepted dissatisfaction. It is not what we were made for. We were made for you. So, Father, I pray that you would bring conviction. And I pray that, Father, as we head now into a time of communion, we, the gospel would be clear. We've spoken it many times this morning, but, God, just the truth of the gospel, that though that rebellion of living for self is a sin that is condemnable, that will send a person to hell, that though that sin is real, there is a sufficient Savior. Jesus Christ came, lived not as his own, but for you. He did fulfill all righteousness for us. And he suffered the punishment we as sinners deserve. So that everyone in this room this morning, everyone listening over Facebook Live, every one of us, repenting of our sins, trusting in Christ and his work on the cross, his righteous life could be forgiven, made righteous by faith, brought into fellowship with you, now empowered to go and live knowing that we, our lives are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we seek to glorify you with all that we have. Father, do that work in our hearts this morning as we come to communion God draws near to the truths of the gospel and the joy that is found only in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.